Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Let's stand for our sermon text, which is John 16, and we're starting at verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. A little while and you will no longer see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this that I said a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So the words we have just read from the 16th chapter of John, as you recall, were spoken just hours before Jesus was crucified. Uh, we're, we're merely hours before his crucifixion. That night was filled with exhortations. It was filled with encouragements uh, from Jesus to his men who would uh, take his name. Those men would then take his name into all the world. He builds them up, right? He builds them up just before they see him die and depart from this world. The first verse of chapter 13 tells us that what Jesus is doing is loving these men. The, the last four chapters, right? He's been loving these men. The first verse of chapter 13 says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So here he is loving his men. He says a lot of things to them. He says uplifting and helpful and inspiring things, and he rebukes them and says things that may have discouraged them for a moment. He loved them, right, by giving them what? By giving them his word. That's how he loved them. He gave them words. He preached to them. He spoke to them. He's he, he gave them his word. He's speaking about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the power of prayer. He says, don't forget prayer. When things are awful, pray and God will hear you. Uh, he tells them about the inevitable persecution that's going to be coming to them. And then also, wonderfully, he tells them about the place that he's going 
uh, ahead of them to prepare where they would reside with him, where they would one day join him. By now, they're well on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane at this point. They have left the upper room. They're walking along the way. Um, Some things he's disclosed to them, and some things we'll just have to wait. We can't tell it to them now, as we looked at last time. Along the way, we've seen the confusion of his men all throughout this. They've been confused, as we will see again in our our text this morning. A little while, Jesus says, and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, Jesus says. There's some question about what time period Jesus is talking about here. It could be that he's speaking of the time between his death and his appearance to them the, the, the weeks following his resurrection. It could also be that he is speaking of the time between his ascension and his second coming, that longer gap, that gap that we live in now. And um, Calvin takes another view altogether, arguing in his commentary that Jesus is, even in this passage, speaking about the coming of the Spirit by whom Jesus would be present with them spiritually, right? So he's going to go away, the Spirit comes, and the Spirit is Jesus with the the apostles. So the interval between not seeing Jesus and then seeing him for Calvin is the time period between Jesus' ascension and Pentecost, Jesus' ascension and the outpouring of the Spirit. Um, Well, either at Pentecost or when he's with them and he breathes the Spirit into them. Regardless of the view that we take, Jesus is still dealing with the fear of these men, right? We're racked with fears, aren't we? You and I, every day it seems there are fears. If you read any news, you're made to fear. That's why you shouldn't read the news. Right? I don't need anything else to be fearful about. I have my own sin to deal with, right? Do I really need to wor- worry about these, these death hornets or whatever they're called? <laughs> um, murder, murder bees, right? But they're fearful. These men are fearful, and Jesus is dealing with men who are afraid. The fear is that all is lost if Jesus goes away. He keeps coming back to this. You know, I'm going to send the Spirit, I'm going away, but it's better, it's going to be better. Really, really believe this, it's going to be better. And he keeps coming back to this, but they fear that all is lost, and you and I would fear it too. I mean, think of Jesus, who had done miracles before you, had taught you every day, who had loved you, who could peer into your heart and know exactly what you were thinking. For him to leave would just create all kinds of fear. Jesus has repeatedly in his final words encouraged them that his physical departure from them is not the disaster they think it is going to be. In fact, it is good. It's good. It's better. Why? Because the Spirit will come and he will go to the Father's right hand. Jesus will go to the Father's right hand, the place right now where your Savior is ruling both heaven and earth. That's where he is. 
And so we've been over all of that in previous sermons. Yet here he is again pounding this theme, making sure that they know that his departure is not the end, but that it is part of his father's plan. Jesus was born, lived, died, he rose, he appeared to the disciples, he ascended to the Father, and the Spirit was then poured out. By means of the Spirit, the apostles and any believer since the time of the apostles are given spiritual eyes to do what? To see Jesus Christ. Spiritual eyes to see Jesus Christ. The Spirit has in all ages been the one who opens blind eyes to see Jesus. Okay? In the Old Testament saints, up to the, the uh, first century and on to today. Do you remember what Jesus says to the disciples? Just after he appears after his resurrection, he says, he says to Thomas, who had, who had proclaimed, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my fingers into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Right? He gives that grand statement of his, his needing physical proof. Jesus then, appearing to the disciples, says, well, reach your finger, reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him wonderfully, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus rebukes him. And then teaches the rest of the disciples that you're not going to get this sort of infantile treatment anymore. Um, that's an old thing, right? He says, because you have seen, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. Right? That's what he says to the one who insists on seeing. He says, you know, blessed are they who do not see and yet believe. In other words, blessed are they who did not see with their physical eyes, but who have been given spiritual eyes with which to see Jesus by faith. Faith is, after all, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Not seen. And the Apostle Peter writes, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So believers, though you do not see, you see. Though none of us have ever seen Jesus with our physical eyes, we see him with the eyes of faith. And faith is only and ever wrought by the regenerating, rebirthing work of the Holy Spirit. Physical eyes never once brought a man to believe in Jesus Christ. Seeing him physically never ever led somebody to believe in Jesus Christ, even when he was physically present. There were many who rejected what their eyes saw because they did not have spiritual eyes. 
They did not have spiritual sight. Jesus told the Apostle Paul, after Paul lost his sight, when he saw Jesus, he said this, Get up, stand up on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to do what? To whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So the Apostle Paul was raised up to give, to, to lead the people to spiritual sight, even though Jesus would never be seen by any one of them. Paul saw Jesus. That was a requirement of the apostles. We talked about in the Sunday school class on Galatians. And then he lost his sight, and then he regained it, and then set about going out into the world to preach Jesus Christ so that those who were blind might see. The eyes of faith see Jesus, brothers and sisters. That's the way God has made things to work. The eyes of faith see Jesus. If the Spirit has worked in you, what He has given you are spiritual eyes. Spiritual eyes that see Jesus, though you've never seen Him with your physical eyes. This is part of what Jesus is saying in this passage. You will not see me, and then you will see me, even, or at, even after I go to the Father, you will see me, because the Spirit will, will birth you anew, and you will have spiritual eyes, and those eyes will see, though not seeing. The Israelites were condemned because while seeing, they did not see. All believing Israelites and Gentiles through all the ages have been blessed to see even while not seeing. Isn't it true that so many people wish to see Jesus physically? Do you know people who want to, That's they're like Thomas, you know, unless I put my hand in his wounds... Do you know people like that? Perhaps, perhaps some of you struggle with not seeing Jesus physically. How could you possibly believe? How could you possibly believe in something you had never seen with your eyes? We want a sign. We want something we can touch and handle and see, or we will go on doubting. But Jesus himself said that blessing comes through believing and not seeing. Not seeing is the route to blessing, right? And, and it is not as if he has left us without any way of seeing him. How do we now see Jesus, right? Those who want a physical sign will not be given it. But, but those who have spiritual eyes now see Jesus how? In the inspired Word of God. 
In the inspired Word of God, we see Jesus. The spiritual eyes gaze upon this, this unending universe of the glories of Jesus Christ. In the Word of God. In the inspired Word of God. This, dear brothers and sisters, is a better way. It's a better way than the physical presence of God. Jesus said as much, and the Apostle Peter says it too. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, right? The apostles got to see him physically. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, right, transfiguration, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard with our ears this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So the Apostle Peter's like, look at all this physical stuff that we got to hear and see and touch and, and experience. And then he says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So he's like, God has made it so that the eyes of faith wrought by the Holy Spirit, see Jesus in the prophetic word. That's the way it's supposed to work. And, and he says, it's a word made more sure than what they physically saw. Are you kidding me? They saw his transfiguration, and that's the example he gives. They heard the, the voice of the Father. How many people in human history have heard the voice of the Father? You know, and here he says, but you've got the word, the prophetic word. The Bible, the pages of Scripture, inspired by the same Spirit, right? Those of you with the Spirit see, see the Son of God in the Word of God. You don't need anything outside of the prophetic word to give you what you need to believe. What you need to see Jesus. You don't need, you know, you, you don't even need movies by Mel Gibson. Don't go see movies like that. It's sin. It's sin and it will wreck your brain. TV series, The Chosen. Right? Everybody wants to see things physically with their eyes. Stained glass windows, right? We could go back in history. Stained glass windows are just Mel Gibson a thousand years ago. Right? Relics, statues, idols. All those things will lie to you about what and who Jesus is. They always lie. All you need... All you need, all that is, is necessary is the Word of God, the inspired Word of God, the, the work of the Holy Spirit, right? And all you need is that Word of God. By that means alone, you will be blessed because not seeing, you will see Jesus. 
not seeing with your physical eyes, you will see with your spiritual eyes. Now, have you looked, have you gazed on Jesus this week? Have you gazed upon your Savior this week? Have you looked upon him with the eyes of faith? How long ago was it that you read anything in Scripture because you wanted to see Jesus? If you read your Bible this week, you you wanted to fix your eyes on Jesus. You wanted to see your Savior. You wanted to learn from him. You wanted to sit at his feet and hear him speak to you. Right? That's what you want to do. If you did not read your Bible, you didn't. Right? If you did not read your Bible, you may be in danger of assuming that it is only the physical that matters. You may be wanting a sign. Right? If the Word just doesn't connect with you, 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 you are going to be tempted by wanting something physical to worship. You may be in danger of assuming that it is only the physical that matters, or you may be in danger of abandoning the spiritual realm for the physical realm, the physical world. Right? What matters to you? Just physical things? That which you can touch and see and taste and handle? Or spiritual matters, those things that are hidden to the natural man. Right? You may, you may be more concerned about the fact that your physical body is decaying than you are about having spiritual eyes that see spiritual truths and eternal truths. Perhaps what the Apostle Paul says in uh, his second letter to the Corinthians will help you examine yourself in that. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen but at things which are not seen. We look. We actually look at things that are not seen. So we're seeing things that are not seen. We're seeing them. For the things which are seen are temporal. But the things which are not seen, but seen, are eternal. And so those of you who wish to see Jesus must give yourself to, I mean, it's, it's like every Sunday school lesson, reading His Word. That's what God left you with, right? It is there that Jesus will be revealed. It is there that spiritual eyes will see spiritual internal truths. That is the means that God has ordained for us seeing His Son. You won't be given a sign from heaven. You will not be given a vision. You will not be given an audible voice from heaven. You will not be given anything other than what you already have received. And there's tons of them in this room. And that is the word of God. And so again, are you gazing at your Savior in the word of God? Peering into spiritual deaths, grasping for wisdom that is more than the latest fad and the drivel that comes out of YouTube and TikTok. 
If you are, then it means you are in God's Word, right? And there, will, there you will see Jesus if the Spirit has given you new, new birth. You will see Him there. You will gaze upon your Savior in the words of Scripture, right? The, apostle, the apostles don't get what Jesus is saying again, right? So here we go again with the apostles not going what's going on. I mean, if we were there, it would be even worse, Okay, I mean, we would just spend like days. I mean, we just, you know, it would not have made sense. So let's not be so hard on the apostles, right? The apostles don't understand Jesus' words about seeing and not seeing and going to the Father. Um, Verse 17, some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me, and a little while and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this he's saying? A little while, we don't know what he's talking about. We just don't, what is he talking about? And Jesus then, as was often his response, doesn't immediately answer their questions, but rather um, teaches them about their hearts, right? Verse 19, Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this that I said, you know, and he says it again, a little while and you will not see me in a little And again, a little while, and you will see me. And so Jesus understands they're confused. And they're struggling to understand the details about Jesus leaving or not leaving or whatever. He's going and coming and coming and going and when it's going to be and what the timing is. Yet he doesn't give them clarity. Right? Instead, he tells them what will be going on in their hearts. What does he reveal to them? He reveals to them that they are going to be sad. They're going to be grieved. They're going to be sick of heart at what is coming, whatever it may be. Why? Because Jesus will not be with them. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Now, notice the contrast here. Notice the contrast At Jesus' departure, the disciples will grieve and lament, but unbelievers will rejoice. They'll be so happy, they'll be thankful, they'll dance. Calvin paraphrases the meaning of Jesus here with these words. He says, a hard and severe temptation awaits you. For when I shall be removed from you by death, the world will proclaim its triumphs over you. You will feel deep anguish, and the world will pronounce itself to be happy and you to be miserable. Right? Notice what Jesus says. I mean, what what Calvin says here. He's paraphrasing Jesus' words. And he says, a deep and severe temptation awaits you. The temptation is when when you see the world rejoicing at the death of Christ. And you are weeping and lamenting. A severe temptation will come on you. What a temptation that would be, wouldn't it? It is so hard for us to detach ourselves from crowds. It is so hard for us to not be influenced by the loudest voices of our culture. There is something about our fallen nature that does not like to be out of alignment with the majority. 
Instead of being happy with the, the cutting truth of the Word of God, we figure out ways to first be silent about the truth, then second, to subtly affirm the opposite of the Word of God, and then third, just to openly advocate for, for the compassion of untruth. We do that. We're not impervious to that, right? Why do we do that? Because we want to fit in. We just want to fit in. We don't want to feel awkward anymore, right? Because we fear man rather than fearing God. That's why, because, because we do not want to pick up our crosses and follow Jesus Christ. It, it's just too painful. It's too depressing. It's too costly. You know, it's too much of a downer when, when everybody's telling me that life is so great, right? Give me another vodka and soda. It's just great. And here the Christians are, through their entire lives, living a life of repentance. And so when the followers of Christ see the man they have followed dying on the cross, and then see how the world rejoices to see him suffer and die, they are going to be, attempt, they are going to be tempted to go along with that crowd. They will be tempted, dear brothers and sisters, to rejoice along with the world. And it's Jesus' intent here in this passage to warn them that it is going to be good to be contrasted to with the world when I die. You're going to grieve. They're going to rejoice. Don't be tempted by it. It's better at that point to go into the house of mourning than into the house of feasting. At the death and departure of their beloved Savior, they ought to weep and grieve and cry out and lament. But their temptation will be to tamp all of that down and do the opposite when they see the whole world going that direction. When they see their parents rejoicing in the removal of Christ, they will be tempted to fall into conformity, right? There's nothing new about this kind of temptation. It's not like it only existed then and it doesn't exist now. Right? Every Christian who has ever lived has faced the temptation to join the world in rejoicing that Jesus is gone and doesn't mind their sin. That he doesn't see. The world rejoices as if there is not a coming judgment. The world rejoices that they, they do not immediately die when they commit the grossest of sins and blasphemies against God. The world rejoices that God does not see and is not there. And meanwhile... Even as the unbelieving world rejoices, we do not like to stick out. We don't want to swim upstream when the whole world is swimming downstream. We do not like to be different. Do you like to be different? And so the temptation is to join in with the unbelieving world. The temptation, dear brothers and sisters, is to live your life as if God is not there and to rejoice that you get to go after your sin for however long you live. Temptation is to want your good things in this life now and not be joined with a group of lamenting losers who are waiting for their good things in the life to come. Lamenting, repenting losers. 
the whole world is gay. Right? The whole world is gay. The whole world is happy that Jesus has departed out of this world and seemingly to their eyes left them alone to enjoy life without the shackles of God's definition of right and wrong. Right? And you know what? We envy that. We envy that sort of so-called freedom. We envy, you know, we envy that libertarian joy. We're, we're tempted to envy evil men. The disciples, Jesus is saying, would be tempted to go along with the rejoicing of the crowds as Jesus bled and died. And dear brothers and sisters, what did they do when Jesus died? They scattered. They ran. They hid like Adam and Eve hid on the day that they ate from the forbidden fruit. They were ashamed of Jesus. And it does not take long for that shame to give birth to, you know, full-orbed rejoicing in his death. Peter won't even admit that he knows Jesus. And he does that with cursing. And so Jesus, what is Jesus doing in this passage? Jesus is telling his men, he's, he's bracing them for these coming temptations. He's bracing them to resist the joy of the world at his death. He is setting up for them a contrast and telling them, don't resolve the tension. Live in the tension. Don't try to resolve it. As the world rejoices, do not be ashamed to weep. Right As the world sings derisive songs about the Son of God, you grieve that your beloved Jesus has left you. As the world dances about the cross and lifts glasses of wine to toast his riddance, you should hang your head and weep and grieve and lament and hurt and suffer and feel the pain of it, the pain of the precious Lamb of God shedding innocent blood on your behalf. He's telling them to embrace that difference, embrace that, temp that, that, that tension. And then, as Calvin puts it, he gives them the necessary arms for that warfare. He gives them the right weapon to win the battle. Jesus says to them, your grief will be turned into joy. Your grief will be turned into joy. Just be patient. I think of the psalmist who said, weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. The grief of the Christian, the weeping of the Christian, the heavy weight of the, the Christian who is more prone to enter the house of mourning than the house of feasting is temporary. It's temporary. The apostles... Grief was changed to joy when they received the Holy Spirit. The hearts of all Christians who struggle in this in-between land between Christ's first and second comings do grieve. We grieve our sins. We grieve that the wicked seem to prosper. We grieve when we are sinned against. We grieve when we sin against others. We grieve when people die. We grieve at the ravages of sin and death. We grieve that, that Jesus waits and we're not with him yet, and why so long? 
But there is coming a day when the weeping of God's children will end. And the weeping of those who rejoiced in this life will begin and never, ever end. Their weeping will be permanent. Permanent. The weapon Jesus gave to his disciples and to all disciples is hope. Hope. That's what he gave us. We hope in Jesus Christ and know that there will be an end to our grief the grief of this life. We have hope. The Apostle Paul puts it this way, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us for the anxious, anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope... We have been saved, but hope that is, is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. Right? We have every hope that all things will be brought to order. Even though our Jesus is not with us now and we do not see him, there will be a day when we stand in his presence after his return and our weeping ends and he wipes away every tear from our eyes. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. You know, like the joy that floods a mother's heart after the pain of labor, the anguish that goes away. The pain may go on, but the anguish goes away when she holds that baby that she just gave birth to. So will be the joy of believers when Christ is again with them physically. Physically. Jesus said, therefore, you too have grief until now, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. It will endure through unending ages, that joy. Your grief will be gone. Unending joy for those who put their faith in Christ during this life and resolve to swim upstream and endure ridicule and refrain from rejoicing in the, uh, of the world in Christ's absence. For those who had their good things in this life, who lived in Vanity Fair, who enjoyed her goods, who laughed and laughed as they went along with the throng down the broad street, unending weeping, they will find in a moment that their precious Babylon is destroyed. And they will throw dust on their heads and cry out, weeping and lamenting as they see destruction come upon their place of all of their festivities that they threw in our faces as Christians. 
this world and her Babylon. Jesus will return and all the kings of the earth will lament Babylon, but the, the people of God will be feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we are so ashamed of how much grip the world has on our hearts. It's as if we don't believe what Jesus has told us in his word about the word. Father, our eyes gaze on so many things. Our hearts envy so many things that are contrary to your will. And we so seldom have hearts that burn to gaze into Scripture and see the one true living God. And so, Father, work that faith, that hope, that joy into our hearts that our minds would, would continually be on eternal things, lasting things, substantive things, and we would stop trying to make vapor be so substantive. Father, help us in this task. Help us by your Holy Spirit. Stir up faith and hope and love in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.